Welcome to the Maffeo Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Maffeo. In episode 35, I chatted with Sebastian Barnick, director at Pleasant Land Distillery. Starting life in the Royal Navy, he became a certified distiller and WSCT educator with a wealth of experience in wines and luxury spirits. He's an MPD professional and runs a sustainable contract distillery in the UK. I hope you will enjoy our chat. Hi, Sebastian. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So it's a, it's a great honor to have you here now, now that I met you and the, the rest of the family <laughs> in Berlin. So today it's going to be a very interesting episode because it's something that I don't really talk about that much on the side of production and liquid development and, you know, the distillery side of things. You know, we, I usually take care of the commercial side of things after the, we leave the distillery. The commercial guys always forget about us. <laughs> they've already sold it <laughs> and that's that's very true that's very true but yeah you know sometimes it's you know i a lot of people will have like a lot of complaints about production in especially in big companies so yes it's, yeah it's the yin and yang of the of the of the drinks business no it's nice to have someone to blame exactly exactly <laughs> that's the thing if it's not if it's not a customer you know, with the customer, you can't blame the customer. So you have to blame, blame production. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you um, a few questions. So, I mean, you've got your own brands, but you're also producing on behalf of other people. So they, they come to you and they want you to help them produce uh, a liquid and, you know, and help them with the brand. So how, how does it start? And I, and I know that there's no right or wrong question here like you know right or wrong answer here but where, where does it start usually does it start with a brand so do people come with a brand and they want to you know attach a liquid to it or do people come with a liquid idea the idea of a liquid and then they want to build a brand every every single one of those <laughs> and more you know i i'd say sort of 90 percent of our business is is producing things for other people so we have a a whole load of different motivations that people come with. I think it's the number one thing. And, and actually, a lot of people who don't know their motivation, you know, some people have, have not put enough thought into what they're going to do, I think. And you'll be able to see that as well in, in this sort of, you know, thousands of craft brands that are out there, you know, but I think it's really important, critically important to have your motivation in the front of your mind because launching a brand is not easy <laughs> it's, it's such a, a tricky thing to do there's there's so much work involved you know blood sweat and tears uh, throughout <laughs> you know you're going to be having lots of sleepless nights so if you don't know why you're doing it <laughs> then, then you're not going to get very far there's so many different motivations you know some people have a, a real financial one that like you know we want to launch a, a brand to, to make lots of money and we want to sell at a 12 times multiplier from you know <laughs> with celebrity buy-in and all this sort of stuff. And then you have people who, who want to do uh, a family legacy business, who want to be there for, for a really long time and, and have, a, have a sustainable slow growth that pays them well and well into the future. And then other people just love the craft. They've always wanted to make something and they love playing with flavors. They love, you know, doing all sorts of different things. But then also people who want the occasion 
So, you know, they have like a, I want to have, make the perfect drink for sipping on the French Riviera because I like the French Riviera and I want to make something to drink there. <laughs> Which, you know, it's awesome. I, I like it. You know, why not? <laughs> they're, they're... I mean, I, I, yeah, and I, I love like the, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of the target occasion. So when you are, when you're clear on what occasion you want to cater, then it makes life easier from a, from a taste profile perspective, I mean, you're not going to do something very heavy. Like you, you can play with the liquid and with the flavors so that it can accommodate that kind of occasion. Yeah. Do they know what it takes to, you know, like to, to get to get into this business? Oh, yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah, I, I said to you on, you know, on email before that, I'm going to say it depends about a million times with the questions you ask me. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think it might, but there's a competition for the motto of the distillery. It's either going to be, it is what it is, or, <laughs> or it's going to be, it depends. Because <laughs> I, I say that too many times every day. But yeah, it depends on the background they come from. It's a real diverse range of people. And they, they have a, a real diverse range of experiences. When you're working with people in the trade, I think you have a, a really, you know, they, they have some experience. They know the, the deals that they get. They're always optimistic that people are just going to buy their product based on what it's, you know, if we build it, they will come. I think that's something throughout. I think people have been seeing how easy it's been in the past 15 years. And only now they're starting to see just how much how much real graft it is to make your brand work. From the distilling side of things, from the actual production, there's a little bit of knowledge out there. I, I think two sections of people have a lot to answer for. Firstly, you have big brands with marketing campaigns where they tell you, so much bullshit about how production works <laughs> and, and people people you know listen to it they hear it they get it advertised to them on the tube you know you've got a whatever 20 million case a year brand telling you how artisanal their process is <laughs> you know it's like and then the other side you know you've got people who have all been doing the, the gin boom so you have rectifiers where the process is really easy <laughs> And you go, right, okay, so I've got on one side brands who are making, you know, X many million cases of whiskey a year, and they're saying, oh, we do it in this way. And then, you know, you've got other people saying we make, you know, 100 bottles a year, and all it took was me playing around with some ingredients. It leaves most people looking to launch a brand with very little to go off. You know, it, it, people use the information like they do when they're, you know, when you're sick and you Google your symptoms. Yes, <laughs> that's that's exactly what happens with distilling. <laughs> it's, people people googled it. They looked on a Reddit thread or something about how to make rum, and and everyone's a, an armchair expert. <laughs> yeah, the only the only difference is when you Google some like you have something on your finger or whatever, like it always ends up with a mortal <laughs> disease. When you Google something about the drinks business, you probably end up having buy out for yeah. billions and, and celebrities having sold to big multinationals and then everybody thinks that they can launch a gym brand and sell it to Diageo or Pernod Ricard or yeah. anybody like just to make some you know like super multipliers as you as you said no yeah exactly Let, let's clarify this because I think that a lot of people in the business despite having you know being in the business they they, they don't have it very clear you know like 
can you can you explain very briefly like the difference between you know rectifying and distilling just to just so, to clarify when, when especially especially i mean obviously when it comes to to gin which is the biggest you know user yeah <laughs> yeah so so well I, there's there's three sections really you've got compounding uh which is where you you buy a spirit and you add flavorings to it uh or water or uh, or sugar and that you then have a uh, you know a, a mixed product basically like uh, like you would for a liqueur or like you would for a, a bathtub gin uh, and that's called a compounded product and rectifying is where you buy in a neutral spirit from a producer like a big commodity producer it's what what happens at the end of every year you have the grape lake and the or the wine lake and the and the grain lake uh, and these are basically continental overproduction of wheat or grape or whatever raw sugar beet whatever raw material and instead of just letting it rot what happens is they typically have enormous they used to be state run now they're mostly privately owned uh distilleries with that distill to neutral so they make neutral spirit and that gets used in medical procedures gets used in you know your hand sanitizer bottles they add some chemicals to denature it but it's all it's a lot of it's the same stuff it's a huge commodity bulk product and people ship millions of liters of this around the world at 96% or over 96%. And and by law, gin has to be made with a neutral spirit. So to make your own is is really is really challenging and not particularly cost effective, especially when you can buy this neutral spirit at, you know, less than, you know, one pound fifty per liter of pure alcohol. When I talk about liters of pure alcohol, I mean liters of alcohol at 100% equivalent. This is how we, in, in distilling, we talk about alcohol because it, it makes the most sense before you start adding water and all this sort of stuff. You've got to move yeah. it around in a simple universal term. So rectifying is where you take neutral spirit, you add your flavors to it, be it botanicals, be it you know flavor extracts or chemicals or whatever you want, and then you redistill it to create uh, a clear spirit that tastes of whatever you put in there <laughs> so you know you want to make a gin you put you have to taste predominantly of juniper that that is the law despite a lot of brands out there not really following that <laughs> you have to add your your juniper your you know coriander angelica all that sort of classic stuff to it and then you distill it and you capture that vapor and that vapor then is condensed and then diluted with water and that then becomes your your gin and and that's very easy to do. The the technical barrier to entry is is minimal. All you need is a, a license, a rectifiers license, and a fifty liter still you can buy off the internet for you know a couple hundred quid and a heat source and some water, and uh, and then you can make your own gin. <laughs> and that's why everyone does because you can. <laughs> yeah. The the thing with gin is a little bit. I mean, it's very similar to the beer, to the beer industry, right? The whole thing with craft you know, with home brewing and distilling, you know, like it, it's very, very similar. I mean, with different legal aspects, of course, but basically that's, that was one of the drivers of, of yeah. the, the gin boom. The, the, the issue that I see, for example, in the gin category is that everybody seemed to play in the same price band. You know, everybody think that they can claim that kind of like, I don't know, 30, 35 pound euro, you know, limit and that create and that has created and it keeps creating a lot of confusion for consumers because they have no idea 
what they're buying and they just rely on price because they used to rely on price on, I don't know, whiskeys and rums and, and so on. And, but, you know, like at the end of the day, they're just getting confused by, by a price point that has, that has nothing to do with the, what you put in it. So that £35 price point comes back to the cost of goods. So the cost of goods for all of these guys, you know, unless you're doing millions of bottles a year, is pretty similar. So yeah. they'll be reliant on the cost of the neutral spirit, the cost of fuel, and then the price of duty. The, the, so alcohol tax. Yes. And then you have naturally, you've entered into a drinks ecosystem, which you talk about a lot on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. and of margins and stuff. And you can say whatever price you want, <laughs> but people are only going to pay so much. And the drinks are always going to cost a similar ballpark, right? With gin. So it's a gin and tonic is the occasion for 99% yeah, of gins. So, you know, people are going to always pay probably between five pounds and 10 pounds for a gin, double gin and tonic. You yes. know? And, and you have to work your way back from there. And funnily enough, it normally ends up between 30 and 40 pounds a bottle into retail or from retail. So people are, are squeezed on margins because when you're a small startup business, you don't have the economies of scale. Of um, the bottles all cost between sort of 80p to two pounds for your glassware. You know, your labels are all going to cost a similar amount as well, or unless you want to go really crazy. So, so you're constrained. And then in terms of liquid, you have to taste predominantly of juniper. So you are already, you know, you, you're, you're playing in the same field as everyone else. Uh, your ingredients, you know, you can add, sure, you can add, you know, uh, saffron or whatever you want to it. And that will add a premium. But how much premium do you want to go? Because if you leave that 30 to 40 band, people either can't use you in cocktails or you're not making enough margin or the distributor's not making enough margin, you know, and energy costs what it costs. We're, we're, we're constrained by our, by our raw materials. Yeah, no, no, I can imagine. No, but my, my point was more on the, on the lower end of things that I feel, I personally feel cheated when I know that there is not some, you know, it's not a great product that actually gets sold at the same price as a product that I that I consider higher in in quality. So what you're saying is that basically that's the that's the minimum barrier. So they cannot go lower because otherwise they wouldn't make any money. But then yeah. the other guys are also not you know playing with the margins. So yeah. it it all ends up in the you know like that's what I mean about the confusion. A commercial product, a good quality product, or a very averagely you know rectified product. Mm -hmm. And they all sit in the same price band. I, then, then it comes down to the salespeople, because, for example, I, you know, I used to work in for for a luxury spirits brand agency. When I was there, it was probably six years ago, we were seeing cocktails in central London going for twenty five pounds plus per cocktail. And this, I mean, this is crazy money. We were like, this is insane. But we would use the best aged whiskey. You know, it was the whole thing. Now, now you go into central London and they're making these cocktails with like bullet or something, which is, a, you know, a, again, a bulk commodity product that sells millions and millions of cases a year that you can buy 
a whole bottle for less than 20 pounds, 25 pounds. This is just a, a crazy, it's a really confusing time to be in. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And let's, and let's talk about that because then we can go back to distilling, but let's start to bottom up as we usually do. So I guess I'm a bit, I'm a big advocate of the fact that it all starts from the glass, no? from the, from the, the glass at, at, at the bar, sitting at the bar or the bottle, of course, in a specialty on off trade or, you know, license and, and, you know, so what you, what you're saying, I mean, your experience is basically that the, there was a trend at some point in which you were actually paying for a premium cocktail because of the premium ingredients that were going into that. Yeah. And then once that they broke the barrier <laughs> of the, whatever that could be, you know, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds or dollars, then at some point it all everybody got used to paying that money and then they started to recuperate margins you know from a drinks cost perspective mm. and then using more commodity brands to still accommodate that price point is that correct there's a bit of both right so <clears throat> we've we've seen the the on trade get absolutely hammered through the pandemic we've seen them get hammered again with the cost of living crisis and we've also seen big brands get worried about losing market share to craft and their strategy to fight back is by supporting the on trade giving them money giving them stock giving them everything and they're going right these these bars are going right we need to survive can we sell a supermarket you know you can get it in a budget supermarket for 18 pounds a bottle can we sell this at 25 pounds in a cocktail and sometimes they can <laughs> and that's that's you know that's the that's the reality so it's a really complex ecosystem at the moment i was talking to to my old boss because we were looking at a pricing strategy for our our own product of vodka and we were like you know because i've always worked with luxury i thought luxury price but luxury liquid luxury bottle you know all of this and he was like you know seb six years ago i would have told you go luxury now i don't know anymore <laughs> now i don't know anything anymore <laughs> everything has changed <laughs> and, and this is and this is very true that's yeah. very true so um, the, the the top the top down ears are gone very much the, so the, the, <laughs> this is this is the bottom up era absolutely and, and sometimes i mean you know i get i get some comments on my linkedin posts when i talk about how to do it bottom up and a few people comment is like yeah but this is too difficult you can't do it like this is too slow and i was like yeah but this is this is the way, I mean, you either do it this way or you're out because, you know, top down is not an option anymore. So, you know, you either learn to do it bottom up or, you know, the top down helicopter money kind of approach doesn't work anymore. And and actually, you know, the money, you know, that, that's another thing to come back to is throwing money at things does not work, does not work anymore. Not for, not for the little guys, certainly, because we run out. <laughs> you know we are not too big to fail this is <laughs> <laughs> no no distiller is going to be bailed out by the government no, for, that's for no. sure <laughs> so you know we we have to now make a sustainable long-term business and you do that by building relationships by having a really 
good value chain, making sure everyone is looked after, making sure you can afford to do promotions with people when you need to, and you still have enough in the tank to, to pay the bills. That's the way forward. <laughs> and let's actually dive into this aspect because, you know, t- talking about value chain and, you know, like the, let's say, blending the commercial and production aspect of of things. Now, when, when people come to you, do they understand where to put the money? What goes where? Like, how do they approach the value chain? Do they approach it, you know, top down or bottom up? You know, like, do they... Chris, it depends. You know what I mean? It depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> no, honestly, we, we get, you know, you know, Goldilocks with the, no. it's an old fairy tale, but anyway, she's, I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> it's good. It's not a good, it's not a good analogy. <laughs> fairy tales on a drinks podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We talked about the holistic distillery the other day. So that's, <laughs> I'll get my healing crystals ready. <laughs> So what, 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 let's say, what, let, let's put it this way. Like, wh- what do you think is the right way to think about the, 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 the value chain or what, what's the best approach from a customer point of view? So, you know, I, I think you have to think where, so this, this, you've got to go back to the beginning. Why are you doing this? Is it for the financial reasons? Is it for creating a legacy? You know, is it for the occasion, right? Why are you going down this road? Because you know, you need to work out how much money you need to be making to make this happen. For example, one of the brands I, you know, we own, one one is called White Cliffs Gin. We're based in the southeast of England. We have uh, in White Cliffs country, we have the White Cliffs of Dover and Beachy Head and all that nearby. We know that there that people here are on a, you know, Genuinely, generally middle class. Most people commute into London. They spend a lot of money on transport in, in return for slightly cheaper accommodation in a more rural location. We know that people uh, spend a lot of time by the seafront. We know we get a lot of tourists down here. We know that the restaurants here are, you know, mainly gastro pubs. I would say so, pubs with a good menu and good quality food, and then a few sort of local regular drinking establishments where you can get your uh, English warm beer, as the French like to call it. <laughs> and, and it's very traditional, but there's also, you know, a, a sort of semi-urban crowd of commuters who have the quality of London and like to indulge in that in a local context on the weekends. And we also know that people have a, a price ceiling. So we're not, people are not spending £25 on a cocktail in Kent. In fact, they're probably not drinking cocktails at all. It'll be a spirit mixer serve. And we know, we come back to, it's going to sit between seven or five to 10 pounds for a double. So we know the bar wants to make 80% gross profit on that. And we know then how much it needs to be per shot. It's 28 shots to a 70 CL bottle plus you know, you add 10% for wastage, and then you go uh, back to how much it's got to cost into the distributor, and because they're going to want their 20 20 to 30% now, some distributors want, you know, just for logistics, which is, is crazy. And then, you know, you come back to how much money do I need to make? Then you have your cost of goods, and you say, right, if my cost of goods is, you know, three times this, we're not going to make this. It just comes out of our margin, because we know that people are only going to spend this much. So you have to make the product fit. Who's going to be drinking it, when they're going to be drinking it, where they're going to be drinking it, and then also what your attitude towards the business is. 
pursuing a, a growth model now where you make no margin or very little margin is is a really risky strategy. But some people want to do that and they've got the backing to make that happen. So it's it's really complex. There's no there's no right or wrong answer, I don't think. I think it depends on how you want to do and, it. And this is very interesting, I mean, what you're saying. So let's say there, there are some people that come to you with a big volume game, like, you know, like to build a brand at scale. So they are happy to work with a lower margin, but building on the scale. That does happen. And, and that's exactly how it happens. But I think it's wrong because often people come with a very top-down mentality. You know, an example, we, we quoted for a, a, a flavored agave spirit brand, right? And they said, our first year's volume is going to be 160,000 cases. And, and they said, how cheap can you make it? And I was like, guys, this is this is not grounded in reality. And you're asking all the wrong questions. Like, should be how good can you make it? <laughs> no, not like, you know, it, and, and also the 160,000 cases. I mean, where's, who's going to buy this? <laughs> and they were like, you know, everyone, cocktails, you know, we see it being consumed by everyone. And it's just saying all the like wrong buzzwords, you know, like if there was a an error buzzer for someone, every time someone said, this product is for everyone, they would have done it every single step of the way. And you're like, guys, this is, this is crazy. And they're like, we're going to work with someone else. And I said, look, guys, honestly, I, I, good luck. <laughs> i've got no more to go add. ahead <laughs> that is the issue i mean many times that i've seen now that that people create a liquid top down so that's that, that was the the reason of my question now like on how do they build the value chain if they build the bottom up or top down because they they start from the ingredients they start with a bunch of like botanicals and very expensive spices and so on mm. and then it just adds up and then when you add the margins of the distributor you know importers wholesalers and 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 so forth and retailers then all of a sudden it becomes like a crazy price on the shelf yeah or you know or at, at the bar and, and then nobody's gonna buy so then then it becomes a luxury yeah. product but almost by mistake you know by wrong value chain yeah and not by the brand essence you know? absolutely and then there is you know, there is this thing that I noticed that it's, it's like, this is not a luxury product, but it, it's priced as a luxury product. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, a lot of the times they just shouldn't be. You know, the, the reality is that it, it's just expensive because they've not done their cost of goods. They've not looked at their supply chain properly. They've not analyzed the value chain. And then they've gone, we want this and this and this, and it all adds up. And in the end, you've got a product that's 50 quid that should be, you know, 30. <laughs> do, do people, when, when they come to you, like, do they understand the kind of like the balance between production and commercial in terms of investment? So I like to think like, where do the first 10,000 pounds go? You know, where, sh where should they go? Should they go in, in stock and, and ingredients? Or should they go in, you know, marketing, commercial? Chris, it, it depends. <laughs> 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 um, look, honestly, from what I've seen, people either typically overspend on production or they underspend and they rarely hit that just right moment. Um, now, I would, I'd say that 
if your outfit is you're a startup brand, founder-led, you've made a liquid, I would say put probably about 50% of that, so five grand's worth into production, leave a thousand for logistics, uh, and then 4,000 into marketing. And then the rest of it is you get out there and you sell it and you sell those first, you know, because that, what's that going to get you? Like 3,000 bottles? So you got, or well, not even, not with the price of glass at the moment. It's probably going to be more like 2,000. So, you know, you, you put that into there and you get a, a, you use your, you bootstrap, you go out, you sell it bottom up and you can sell those couple of thousand bottles by yourself and you will sell that within a few months and you can sell it for money you get paid and you can reinvest into buying more stock you know especially for products that don't require aging that that's definitely the way to do it for products that require aging you're you're in a slightly different ball game because you know you've got to be looking three years five years ahead and then you typically need funding <laughs> or you need to have this as your secondary income I would say to have a comfortable life for sure for that for minimum for three years <laughs> yeah absolutely and and then yeah you you know you've got to be making that volume three years in advance and I mean you know running a distillery and or, or even just laying down a cask of whiskey that's expensive you know thousands of pounds to do that so if you want to be making you know 100 barrels a year it's a hell of a lot of investment yeah it's a tricky one and and you're taking a big gamble based on what your future sales volume is going to be mm. none of us can tell the future not yet anyway no, not yet <laughs> not yet not, not even chat gpt can tell the future no like, i did ask just to learn from the past yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and, and and this must be a very interesting thing that you know for you now because it puts you in a very you know kind of like honest conversation with your customers because of course, like if I come to you with 10 grand and, you know, of course it would be nice for you to set, to, to you know, to get all the 10 grands, no? I, but then you already know that if I don't manage to sell it out, I won't reorder, no? Absolutely. I, I get, honestly, I, I send customers a, I call it a liquid design brief template where I ask them a lot of questions. One of which is what's the project budget? And in England, most people don't really like talking about money. So often, you know, they leave that blank and they don't tell me. Yeah. I, I, I try and ask and they're like, oh, we don't feel comfortable because, you know, I can understand people get burnt in, in business doing things like this. And they don't see it from my perspective that if I charge them <laughs> this, you know, £10,000 out of their first 10000 they're never going to come back because they're going to be sat on all this stock you know, just trying, not knowing how to sell it, not with no budget for marketing, with no budget for logistics, no nothing for activities and promotions. I, I wish people were a bit more transparent with me on that. There is nothing new under the sun, as, as the old expression goes. So, you know, I, I've seen all sorts of budgets and I think that there's a, you know, it, I'm in it with them. You know, because if they never come back, then it's just a one-off, and it's like selling one bottle to one bar, to use yeah, your yeah. adage. No, and this is and this is honestly like it, it's is the is the honest conversation that probably is lacking very often in the business, no? And that's why these people are reluctant to to leave 
that kind of information because then they think you you may use it against them rather than for you know (laughs) for them but then ultimately that's that's the talking about the longevity and the long-term aspect of the business because i want you to come back to me all the time you know like you know like for for new production and keep on coming back to to produce a new batch because because of that you know like I, I, you know you don't want to sell out you know a pallet of stuff and then see you and and goodbye yeah absolutely you know i, I i've seen that many many times I've, I've also seen you know from the other perspective is where people go you know i want to make a product as, as cheaply as possible and then sell it for 40 pounds and you know i yeah, and, and this is this is what i was referring to in the beginning you know like to in that question on you know sitting on the 35 pounds yeah. when you know sometimes it's super cheap and it's like why are you selling it for 35 pounds and and you know most people come and they reference smirnoff gray goose you know these big brand products uh, I hope I maybe Diageo is not going to come and assassinate me. I don't think that'll <laughs> not yet. Um, but yeah, and they see that it's a commodity neutral spirit blended with water, and they go, "Why can't we do that?" <laughs> it's like, well, you haven't got the budget. That's all for today. Remember that this is a two-part episode, thirty-five and thirty-six. If you enjoyed it, please rate it, comment and share it with friends, and come back next week for more insights about building brands from the bottom up.